welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. We celebrated Autism Acceptance Month with a much-anticipated visit from actor Mickey Rowe, who just released his memoir, Fearlessly Different, an Autistic Actor's Journey to Broadway's Biggest Stage. Mickey, who also happens to be legally blind, was the first autistic actor to play the lead role in the Tony Award-winning play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and he's also the founding director of the National Disability Theater. He stopped by the Zeitgeist Show to talk with fellow writer Jane Roper about why he chose to write a memoir, how theater and books brought light to a difficult childhood, and how an autistic person's everyday life is strangely similar to acting on a stage. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Jane and her Renaissance man guest, Mickey Rowe. Hello and welcome to The Zeitgeist on A Mighty Blaze. I'm your host, Jane Roper. Uh, The Zeitgeist broadcasts the first and third Thursday of every month, usually. Um, And I talk with a wide range of authors whose books touch on subjects like race, class, gender, culture, health, science, um, lots of great meaty conversation worthy stuff um, to find out what is coming up or to watch past videos. Uh, You can like A Mighty Blaze on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can also go to our website, amightyblaze.com and sign up for our newsletter. So you'll get a wonderful uh, list every week of all of the shows on A Mighty Blaze, including the zeitgeist. So um, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Uh, My guest is Mickey Rowe. Hello, Mickey. Hello. Mickey is has had a prolific and varied career as an actor, director, consultant, and public speaker. He was the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone, the lead role in the Tony Award-winning play The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. He's also played the title role in the Tony Award-winning play Amadeus, among other productions. He has keynoted at the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, the Kennedy Center, Yale University, Columbia University, Disability Rights, Washington, the Gershwin Theater on Broadway and elsewhere. He was also the founding artistic director of the National Disability Theater, which works in partnership with Tony Award winning companies such as La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego and the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Uh, Mickey lives in Seattle. And he is the author of the debut memoir, Fearlessly Different, which came out a few weeks ago. I have a copy too. Excellent. (laughs) The same one. Uh, Mine is, I don't have the good one. I have the the advanced one. But welcome, Mickey. So great to have you here. It is such an honor to be here with you today. Thank you so, so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, when I heard about your book, um, being a major, like, musical theater nerd, I was like, oh my goodness, I have to talk to Mickey. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was just so excited to learn more about your story. And then um, April, of course, is Autism, Autism Acceptance Month. So um, seems like great timing. Happy Aut- Autism Acceptance Month, I think. Uh, Thank you so much. <laughs> I learned that it it recently changed from awareness to acceptance, which is pretty cool. That is super cool. I think it's it's awesome that the community feels that 
we can ask for more than uh, more than awareness now. We can also ask for people to accept and include autistic yes. people in all things. Yeah, totally. It 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 feels it feels much more appropriate and much more in inclusive. So I was happy to learn about that. Um, so I would love to know now. You've talked. You know, you've been on the news and talked, told your story a lot in person or you're speaking. Uh, what inspired you to turn your story into a book? I thought it was, you, you pointed out at one point, the irony of the fact that when you were a kid, you hated typing and hated <laughs> trying to express your thoughts in writing, but now you are an author. So what led you to decide to write a book? Yeah, so I was feeling so, when I started writing this book, which was got two and a half years ago, I guess now, um, I was feeling really frustrated that there was so much really important, vital information out there about the disability community, mm -hmm. much of it written in brilliant, brilliant, more academic works. Yeah. Um, but that I felt like the mainstream public at large really wasn't aware of much of this super, super vital information about disability and the disability community yeah. um, and about autism. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to figure out what I could do, what small, small part I could play in helping to shift the tides a little bit. Yeah. Yep. And I thought, you know, people really like stories and I'm a theater person, theater actor and director and storyteller. Right. So maybe if I can just tell a really, really good story that people can connect with, I can almost use it as a, um, Gosh, what's the horse called that? Uh, that Trojan horse? Yeah, like a Trojan yes. horse. I could use the story like a Trojan horse right. um, where people could connect with the story, but then it could secretly kind of yes. also be getting them a lot of information about the disability community that yes. might, they might not be interested in reading without a really good story attached to it. Right, right. No, absolutely. I felt like, I, and you succeeded at that because you tell a great story, but I learned so much. And, oh, you know, the more you. I read, the more excited I got to, because it made me realize how, you know, how little I think a lot of us understand about the realities no. of, of autism. And I think we have certain ideas in our mind um, that are, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit off. One of the things you write about is how I think when we hear someone is autistic, we automatically think of a kid of children uh -huh. and we forget sort of, wait, there are tons of autistic adults and they're, you know, navigating the world and, and, and almost all autistic kids are going to grow up to be <laughs> autistic <laughs> right. adults at some point when they're they that that not just going to disappear when they turn 18. <laughs> right. Right. Uh -huh. Yep. Um, so one of the big themes of your book and something that you say over and over again um, is this idea that your differences are your strengths, right? So your yeah. autism has is a superpower in a way. And you say that, you know, for a lot of people, really all of us in many cases, our differences are our strengths. Can you talk a bit about how that's the case for you? Yeah, well, I think in general, you know, we are all often trying so hard to fit in. Mm -hmm. We try so, so hard to fit in that we forget what makes us stand out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote this book really hoping that it would give people courage to stand out and to realize that the things about themselves that feel different or scary or even wrong, that if they can just be their whole selves and their true, true selves, you are giving the whole world such a big gift. You're giving the world such a huge gift when you share all of yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, you know, as an autistic person, I guess I felt vulnerable my entire life as an autistic person. Mm-hmm. Um, often one of the scariest things I can do is go meet someone at a coffee shop for a one-on-one conversation, you know, mm-hmm. that feels super vulnerable to me. Cause I think autistic people are often trying to get social, con- trying to get connections with other people, trying to have social experiences and failing and trying and failing. Mm. So we are vulnerable every day, but that meant for me writing a book that, uh, it's super easy for me to be vulnerable in a book or super easy for me to be vulnerable as an actor on stage. Yes. I'm being vulnerable every day as an autistic person. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that's something that uh, neurotypical authors have to, or, or people in general need to learn to do better. A lot of, just as you're saying that I'm thinking about writing students I've had where they're not able to be fully vulnerable because they're not used to it or not comfortable with it. Um, but it, it takes that, I mean, that's what makes good art is vulnerability. I so, agree. Yeah. I think also it, um, I sort of have an unfair advantage a little bit because a lot of autistic people like myself, we don't necessarily understand all of the social rules that mm-hmm. might exist. So n- neurotypical people or non-autistic people might have a whole bunch of social rules about, oh, this is why you should feel vulnerable writing honestly about this, or this is why you should feel vulnerable being on stage in front of 500 people or 2000 people. Uh, But as an autistic person, I just don't understand. I don't know the rules even exist. I don't know that social rule book exists. That might also make it easier for me to write vulnerably and, or be on stage and act in a vulnerable way because I don't know that there's social rules saying that you shouldn't or that that would be what you would want to do. Uh, yeah, it sounds a little liberating in a way. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> so um, one thing you talk about is how y- some of you, the skills that you've developed over your lifetime really served you well with um, with acting in particular, mm-hmm. this idea of scripts that you talk yeah. about. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So a lot of autistic people come up with scripts for their daily lives to make uh, social interactions easier. Uh, it's something I'm doing right now <laughs> while talking to you in this interview. You know, there are things I've memorized that I say mm-hmm. over and over again. But my job as an actor is, or my job as an autistic person and my job as an actor both, is to make you believe that I'm saying these things for the very first time and yep. thinking of them on the spot. So right. as an autistic person, let's say I go to a coffee shop and I say, hi, can I please have a large coffee? Uh, thank you so much. And then if it seems like more conversation is supposed to happen between you and the barista, I can say, oh, has it been busy today? And then regardless of what the barista says, if they say, yes, it's been busy or no, it's been slow, I can then say, oh, do you like it better when it's busy or slow? (laughs) So we kind of script our conversations that way right? make it easier for us. Right. And when you think about it, that's really the exact same job that an actor does is they are given a script. And these words that they have to say over and over again, but every time they have to convince the other person or the audience that this is the first time that conversation is happening and that it is spontaneous and that they're thinking of all these words on the spot. Right, right. Well, you're very convincing. You're a great actor. (laughs) (laughs) It feels very natural. So um, I've had 30 30 something years of practice. Right, right. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, another thing that you you talk about with regard to to acting and being in a production, which I found really interesting, was for for people who are autistic um, and and with other um, issues. I was telling you about one of my kids who has ADHD. Um, sensory things can be difficult, right? Having like loud noises, unpredictable situations, mm -hmm. a lot of stimulation. Um, but when that's happening within a theater context, you experience it quite differently, right? Yeah, especially being in a show, mm -hmm. it feels really safe in a way. I know that I'm in a completely safe environment on stage mm -hmm. uh, and that everything that's happening has been rehearsed. Yeah. Uh, all the loud sound cues that might happen or big light cues that might happen when the lights change, they happen in the exact same spot every single night. Uh, right. I say a line, the sound cue happens, or I move from standing here to here and there's a big light cue that happens. So it almost in a way feels like you're in control of all of those things and yeah. part of the magic, which is really nice. Is that, do you think part of what drew you to acting in the first place? You, from a very young age, I, you, you like to dress up in costumes as a clown and then you liked to do stilt walking. What do you think the appeal was of theater to you uh, when you were young? Yeah, I think definitely, um, for me, my life is definitely easier when there are clear roles. So for instance, this conversation with you is super easy because the roles are really clear. You're the interviewer and I'm the interviewee. You ask the questions and right. I'm supposed to answer them and sound smart. Um, <laughs> and, in, and so growing up when I would dress up like a pirate or a clown, that sort of gave me role, a role to play, it gave me parameters for yes. how to act. Because um, while I knew what a pirate might do in a situation, because I've watched it all the time on TV and in movies, mm -hmm. uh, that's that makes it really easy. But what mm. would a Mickey do in a situation? I don't know. I don't have that right. that script to look at to know how I'm supposed to act in an interaction. Right, right. But theater, I think, was also really helpful for me at a young age because, you know, growing up, I didn't get a lot of social interaction as an autistic person. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really hard to find that social interaction. But when I went to see the theater or when I went to see theater or when I read a book, I got to have all this like incredible, complex, awesome social interactions happening right in front of me in yeah. a way that was super safe for me and didn't really require much for me. I got to sit, sit back and feel safe and yeah. uh, but while still participating just like everyone else in the audience was participating and getting those social interactions. Right, right. That's great. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. Um, comment here from Christina Powers. My twins, they're both on the spectrum. They are 10. One wants to be an editor because he wants to edit books and loves to read. It's cool. That to make sure. so awesome. We yeah. need so many more autistic editors and autistic uh, and disabled professionals in the publishing in industry. So I really hope that they're that they do that. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, so it, you you talk about uh, in your book how, you know, when you're talking about scripts, but you talk about other ways in the book that you've had to use your skill, some of your skills and develop skills to pass as not having autism in everyday life. Do you think there will be a time when you don't have to do that as much, where you don't have to pass as much? Or do you feel like it's just sort of the way of the world? I would hope so. Um, you know, it was really hard when I was growing up because there was so much stigma around yeah. autism and disability. But now, as we were talking about before we went live, 
this younger generation all of a sudden that has been able to form community during the pandemic over yes. things like uh, TikTok and social media. They've been able to form community and really normalize autism in a way it's never yes. been normalized before. But I think, yeah, to, to talk to your point, I think it it's so interesting that often people might say, oh, it's so awesome what you've been able to do overcoming your autism or in spite of your autism. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as we've been talking about all the ways my autism actually helped me to be a better actor. Yeah. It's interesting that the things we really have to overcome, it's not really that we have to overcome our autism or our disability. It's that we have to overcome the ableism and the stigma in the world right. around us. That's the harder thing to overcome than right. the disability. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And it, it does seem like, you know, slowly some strides are being made to make various settings and places more inclusive. I'm thinking about um, I I know of a, a theater that offers special performances for kids who have sensory issues um, where I think like, the, you know, the volume is lower and certain things don't happen that would normally happen. Um, what do you think are some other ways that society could be more inclusive of, I guess, I mean, to say of all people with disabilities would be big. So let's let's focus on, on autistic people. And specifically, like one example you write about in your book is job interviews, right? Mm -hmm. And how the, the typical traditional job interview really isn't uh, ideal for someone who's autistic. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like the way, you know, so a statistic is that it's estimated around 85% of college graduates on the autism spectrum are unemployed. Mm. Uh, I, I, totally mind-boggling. So huge. much of that has to do with the fact that the way we conduct job interviews so often, we put so much weight on good eye contact during the interview and a firm handshake during the interview. Even right. though so many of the jobs have nothing to do with eye contact and handshakes. You right. may be working in front of a computer all day, uh, mm -hmm. and yet interviews still rely so heavily on handshakes and eye contact. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think working interviews would do so much to increase the number of autistic people we have employed. Let the let the autistic person just do the job that they love and are so good at for a day as part as their interview, rather than right. needing to make small talk about it. <laughs> Right, right. Um, no, that's a great in idea. In general, I think we can even expand out to disability as a whole. Uh, and I think the biggest thing that companies can do is uh, when you're posting for a job or posting posting uh, job openings or things, mm -hmm. make sure you put in there that um, we are so happy to make accommodations for uh, reasonable accommodations for yep people with disabilities. Here are some accommodations we've made in the past. Please feel free to let us know what your accommodations, what accommodations you might make uh, you perform better in this role. Yeah. Uh, and by you starting the conversation, because the employer is the one who has the power here, by yes. the employer opening up that conversation, right. I think it'll do so much to help disabled folks. Right. So the burden isn't all on the folks with the disabilities. They don't have to all constantly be advocating and advocating. There's some proactive advocating on the part of employers. Yeah, it would be nice. And I think it would do a lot, yeah. do a lot to make the world more inclusive for sure. Yes. Yeah. No, that's great. Mm -hmm. 
We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Do you want to hear how successful authors got their start? The Queries, Quams, and Quirks podcast asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Sounds like something that would be up our alley. Listen on your favorite podcast app or go to sarahnicholas.com for more info. Um, you write in your book about, um, the, you know, some pretty sad stuff about abuse and the high rates of abuse um, and not just bullying, but beyond that domestic abuse um, toward people with disabilities. I was really shocked by the numbers of uh, people with disabilities who are murdered by their own families. I mean, that's just chilling. Um, and, you know, you, you experienced some abuse in your life and your family. I imagine um, that was probably pretty hard for you to write about, was it? It was, yeah. I would say the hardest part of the book by far to write about was um, in the book, there's a part of the book where I, you know, I'm in a marriage that is um, abusive and not healthy towards me. But yeah. when that abuse turns one minute, Jamie, okay, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I have a kid. Love it. Trying, trying to get my attention. Uh, yeah. When that abuse turned from happening toward me to being physical towards the children. Yeah. I had to make a really hard choice to uh, just leave, to get up and leave and uh, become a single dad with full custody. Um, And so writing about that was really hard. It was actually the part of the book that I postponed writing Mm -hmm. about for the longest time until one day uh, my agent uh, and editor said, Hey, we we really need to flesh this part out more. Right. Um, but because it was so hard to write about, I I ended up writing about it the way my brain thinks. You know, that part of the book is kind of formatted a little differently yes. than other parts of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to write about it in a way that my brain made sense of it and helped me mm-hmm. process it helped a lot. I think the other thing that really helped a lot in writing about that book is remembering that I'm writing my memoir. I don't have to. I don't have to try to understand why other people did the things that they did or what might've been going through their brain or I, all I need to write about and worry about is how I felt in the situation and what, what part of the story is mine to tell and not working to try to figure out how to tell other people's stories. Cause those right. stories aren't mine to tell. I only yeah. need to tell my story and right. figure out what parts of that experience are mine to tell. Right. Yeah. And it, it's sort of the, the way that you, you can't control other people's actions, but you can control your own. And yeah. and it's similar with regard to with when you write about other people and you write about your own experiences. Um, let's see, uh, kids, since we, we brought up your children and we maybe sort of got indication of one. So you have uh, two kids, right? But then you, you uh, two kids from another marriage, your partner has a couple kids Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. So now yeah. I am so, so lucky. Um, I'm now, I kind of live in a Brady Bunch for the 21st century now. <laughs> yeah. disabled, disabled dad and uh, immigrant uh, woman of color mom. 
Uh, yep. And so we kind of like to call ourselves a Brady Bunch for the 21st century. I love it. Yeah. So I brought yeah. two kids to the equation and she brought two kids to the equation. So we have four of them running all over. So if you hear, if you hear yelling or <laughs> yep. things yep. happening around me, uh, it's them. Nice. Nice. The joy of a, of a house full of kids. Um, uh -huh. Oh, we have a comment from Christina saying that she's a single mom of three and has her kids full time. And I didn't want my kids harmed. So um, thank you for your insight with regard to, to leaving your, your partner, yeah. your previous marriage. Um, you write in the book about how with being a father too, in some ways, your autism is a superpower, right? So how do you think your, you know, your skills and your abilities, your talents make you um, an effective parent? Yeah. So for me, as an autistic person, I'm sensory seeking, which means mm -hmm. that kind of proprioceptive input, I need a lot of it. I need extra proprioceptive input to kind of feel where my fingers and hands end and all of yep. that. Yep. So you might see this in autistic people often if they're stimming physically, if they're yeah. flapping their hands when they're excited or right. rocking back and forth. Yeah. But that means for me as a dad who really loves and needs this proprioceptive input, if my kids are outside rolling, rolling in the grass, I'm going to be out there rolling in the grass with them. Or if my kids are <laughs> jumping on the trampoline, I'm going to be jumping on the trampoline with them. Not because, not just because I think, oh, it's what I should do because to be a good dad, because I actually genuinely enjoy it. and want It's to. good for you, right? It feels uh -huh. good. Yeah. I think also um, so often kids feel misunderstood. I think, I think mm -hmm. that is so universal for all young people at times feeling misunderstood. And yeah. as an autistic person, I feel misunderstood all day, every day, often. So I think that that gives me a lot of empathy to relating to how my kids feel when they're feeling misunderstood. Right, um, right. But it's still interesting, even though even though I'm just as good a dad as anyone else, as an, as an autistic person, if we're in public, I remember uh, there have been so many times if I've been pushing my kids in a stroller with my headphones on and sunglasses on, uh, a lot of autistic people, it helps them to wear headphones and things like that. So maybe mm -hmm. I'm pushing my kids in the stroller with headphones and sunglasses on, and maybe I'm stimming a little bit. So people might be able to tell that I'm autistic or that something's different about me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had people come up to me before when my kids were, gosh, two and a half, three, four years old, and ask them, are you okay? Do you need help? To my kids directly as I'm like, going on a walk with them in the stroller. Oh my gosh. And it's so, so interesting how, you know, people with disabilities so often, if you just make the accommodations for us that we need, we are fine. We can do whatever we need to do. Right. But it's just the outside world that is sometimes, uh, that's sometimes concerned or right. more right. worried than they need to be. Right. Well, and and then it becomes infantilizing, you know, and not recognizing, Absolutely. you yeah. know. Yeah. Disabled adults are adults, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. do very, you know, most of the things that anyone can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it comes Absolutely. to parenting, independence, all of that stuff. Um, back to the theater for a moment. Uh -huh. You helped found the um, National Disability Theater. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the theater and what some of the goals of the theater were? Yeah. So, after Curious Incident, I was feeling really frustrated that so many people with disabilities were only getting cast when, uh, really only getting cast when the role specifically said that the character had the same disability they did. 
Mm. I know for myself, I only get auditions if the character is also autistic. If it says autism in the first word of first sentence of the character's description. Interesting. Yeah. And I thought, you know, we are so much more than that. We, uh, people with disabilities are some of the best creative problem solvers in the whole world. Mm -hmm. We need to be creative problem solvers every day to navigate an inaccessible world. Right. Um, so I thought it would be so awesome if we could all just get together and make incredible, awesome, badass theater. And uh, where not only the people on stage were disabled, mm -hmm. but where it was written by disabled folks, directed by disabled folks, the costumes were designed by people with disabilities and same with the lights and all everything. Yeah. Um, and that we also work to make the productions as accessible as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. So doing things like including, uh, including audio descriptions of what's happening on stage right. in the sound design of the show uh, yep. in ways that add to the artistic ideas of the show mm -hmm. um, or including captions where the captions aren't just added on after the fact. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll see captions above the stage that were just slapped on as an afterthought, but adding those artistically as part of the projections and stage design so that they really enhance the storytelling and theater experience for everyone. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the, one of the great things about accessibility um, I've been learning and you talk about this in your book as well, that really when you make things universally accessible, they, they can be better for everyone. They tend to Absolutely. be. <laughs> Uh, makes for better better experience. Whether you're, um, I think you gave the example of the ramp at the airport, right? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you are in an airport and you're pulling your rolling luggage, yeah. and you see a ramp and you see stairs, you're going to take the ramp because it right. makes your life easier when you're pulling that luggage. Or if you are, uh, let's say, I'm pushing my kids in the stroller, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to use those curb cuts because they might make my life easier pushing the stroller. Right. Uh, or people might be watching a YouTube video or something on public transportation or in the waiting room of a dentist office or something. And they'll use those captions on that YouTube video if they don't have their headphones with them right. so that they can still see the video. Um, right. So even though these things are so incredibly necessary to allow access for people with disabilities who might need those accommodations. Yeah. Um, even if we don't have those disabilities, if we don't need those accommodations because of a disability, they still make all of our lives so much easier and better. Right, right, right. And, and richer. And yeah, absolutely. Um, folks who are watching, um, please feel free to ask questions in the chat and I will pass them along to Nikki. Um, I actually have a question from um, a friend of mine who couldn't watch the live stream, but he's going to watch afterward. Uh -huh. His name is Ben. He is 18 years old. Uh, like you, he is an actor. And like you, he is autistic. Um, and uh, he had a question. He wanted to ask you about um, Sia's movie, uh, Music, and uh -huh. um, her decision to cast a neurotypical actress to play an autistic character. And there was some backlash. Um, can you tell yeah. us about that? Absolutely. So I guess I'll tell background for those who don't know. Sia made a movie called Music. Um, and there was a lot of backlash, one, because she cast um, a non-disabled actor to play the autistic leading role, mm -hmm. and also just because some things in the movie uh, showed like certain types of restraints that have been known to injure and be really harmful for autistic people. They showed them as being helpful, even though they're not 
used and they shouldn't be used, not best practices, but right. the movie and can actually really hurt and kill autistic mm. people. But the mm. movie kind of showed them as if they were really helpful and best practices. Mm. Um, and she just didn't, it seems like, do outreach to the autistic community or research right. with actually autistic people to find out how she could be helpful while making this this movie. Yeah. yeah. To do her but own. I think the biggest takeaway is, um, you know, we are all going to make mistakes in our life. Mm -hmm. So we are all going to make mistakes in our life. We are all going to, unfortunately, just do things that hurt people, other people, and aren't aren't best practice in our lives because yes. we're human. We make mistakes. Yeah. If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying, right? Right. It's but I think the biggest takeaway from the Sia movie that was just made a really unfortunate circumstance is when the autistic community tried to have conversations with her about parts of the movie that were problematic and even come up with solutions with her saying, why don't you just put before the movie starts a little disclaimer that the type mm -hmm. of restraint you use in the movie um, can be harmful to mm -hmm. autistic people. Uh, they, I felt like the autistic community was reaching out, trying to have a conversation with her. Yeah. And instead of being receptive to saying, oh, thank you so much for, pointing out I made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, I'm so happy to be to better learn. educated now and yeah. to make these changes. She instead really lashed out at autistic people mm -hmm. saying, telling a lot of autistic people that, well, I couldn't cast you in the movie. I couldn't cast an autistic actor in the movie because autistic people are bad actors. Uh, and just really lashed out saying yeah. a lot of really problematic things that I'm digging her feet in, which- yeah. I get the impulse. It is so easy to dig your feet in when people call you out for making a mistake. Sure, it's sure. such a good lesson to all of us that right. when we get called out or when when we make a mistake, the best thing we can do is to listen and be grateful for the learning experience uh, yeah. and be open hearted. And yeah, yeah, I think her movie probably would have done a lot better financially and at the box office too, if she had listened and said, oh, thank you so much for your feedback, rather than trying to right. get your feet in and lash out at right. the community. Yeah. And again, there's that vulnerability, right? Vulnerability is really hard to sort of yeah. say, wow, yeah, I messed up. And to sit in that discomfort, but then use it as a way to move on and, and to learn. That's it's really hard. But super, it's, super, super. Hard. Yeah. But it sounds like a lost opportunity. And it's too bad. Maybe Maybe she'll get there, you know, maybe at some point on her, her journey. I'm sure. We're all, we're all just in this learning journey together, That's trying right. to figure it out together. That's who right. Who's the name of the person who asked that question again? Oh, that was Ben. His name's Ben. Thank you so yep. much, Ben, for the question. Yeah. He's a, he's an awesome actor too. I've, I've seen some clips of him in school plays and I think he's, if he sticks with acting, I think he's going to do great. Yeah. So, uh, question here from um, Julie and who is watching. Um, do you think the success of CODA and as we see it will make a difference in how people are portrayed going forward? Yeah. I really, I re especially CODA. I really, really hope that CODA's big win at the Oscars We'll show producers, publishers, you know, show everyone in the storytelling business that allowing disabled folks to tell their stories authentically is actually a good business decision and actually um, profitable. Uh, mm -hmm. I really hope CODA does a lot to change that and get producers excited about authentically telling disabled stories. Because yes. there is no shortage of stories about disability. Right. I think about right? I think about um, the good doctor or atypical mm -hmm. 
or dating all the way back to Rain Man. And I think about books like um, You Before Me or Wonder, right? That if were turned into, uh, both turned into movies uh, with non-disabled actors that they tried to put prosthetics on and things like that. Um, there's no shortage of stories about disability, but we just, in the past, people have felt really uncomfortable allowing actually disabled folks to be included in that process. Um, I think it's, you know, people like Ben really need to see the whole community saying, you know, if you are different, if you access the world differently, we need you. <laughs> and when people with disabilities are not included and not allowed to take part in even stories that are completely and entirely about disability, yeah. it unfortunately doesn't help to accomplish that, I think. Right, right. No, absolutely. Um, one final question, and I, I yeah. think uh, unless there are further questions from the audience, but um, what is the one big takeaway you would like people to have after reading after reading your book? That's such a good question. I think my biggest takeaway would be um, that you are not a burden. So many people, disabled people and non-disabled people, but especially people with disabilities can be taught they're a burden. Yeah. So I want people to know like, you are not a burden. Mm -hmm. Everyone is so perfect and that truly, truly, truly our differences are our strengths. If we, if we can embrace that and embrace that everyone has something to teach us and we have something to teach everyone else, I think it'll go a long way for our society as a whole if we can all just embrace the things about each other that make us different from one another and work to learn together and problem solve together. I think it'll go such a long way for our world. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, well, and thank you for what you're doing to to educate folks. Um, it really, it's a wonderful book. I encourage everyone to check uh -huh. it out. Um, I think we have some links up there. There mm -hmm. it is. Uh, to you could get it at bookshop.org. Um, oh, I should have asked you: is do you have a favorite bookstore in Seattle where folks can get this? I do. You know, or I would say uh, some great bookstore. the The hardest thing right now is we've been so lucky that the book has had so much more demand than was expected. Okay. And so I, it's in our, it's third printing already. Wow. Um, but it's Congrats. meant that because of that, a lot of the bookstores that I really love haven't been able to get their hands on it yet. They're waiting yeah. for that third printing to finish right, right. so that they can get their hands on it. Yeah. Um, but I know that, um, gosh, who was I just talking to? I know that Anderson's bookstore in Chicago has a bunch of autographed signed copies. Oh, great. Uh, okay. On hand. So yep. if you want an autographed copy, you can get one there. Um, Strand Bookstore also has autographed copies on hand. Yeah. Um, and, and you're going to be there soon. So maybe folks. Yeah. Can and then all the other bookstores, whatever bookstore you love the most, awesome. uh, get in touch with them and they'll have the books too soon as soon as that third printing. Great. Well, congratulations. That is wonderful. And thank you so much for being with us here on the Zeitgeist and best of luck with your book and, and everything else that is ahead. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, Herrick's End, book one of the Neath trilogy, is available now if you want to check it out. 
My handle is TM Blanchett on BookTok, Bookstagram, Facebook, and Book Twitter, and I'd love to see you there. We'll see you next time for an episode featuring Lisa Scottolini. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <laughs>